The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We've just sung, for thee all the follies of sin I resign. As we study through this book of 1 Corinthians, we come this evening to a text about fleeing from sin, fleeing from idolatry. 1 Corinthians 10 at verse 14, where we pick up the account We've seen the beginning of chapter 10 about this Old Testament examples of idolatry and sin and how they were an example to us not to fall into the same kinds of things. And here, Paul continues on this theme. Hear the Word of God. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we are all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? Let us pray. Father, we pray for insight to understand how your word speaks to us, its truth, and for grace to apply it even this week in our lives. Speak to us by the power of your Spirit, we ask. We are dependent on you. In Jesus' name, amen. Idolatry is a word that we often associate with primitive practices of peoples long ago in ancient times, far away. We think of shrines with a false god made out of wood or stone, and certainly that was idolatry. But I would like to challenge each of us to reflect on this question as we come to our text tonight. Do you realize that the spiritual battle against idolatry is one of the most important and basic aspects of the Christian's daily warfare? Struggling, battling against any kind of insidious idolatry in our lives. Idolatry is often at the very center of our lifelong battle against sin. And if you are a Christian, you will not be finished fighting against some form of idolatry until you have finished your earthly race. And wasn't it a beautiful hymn that talked about loving Jesus Christ and talking about fleeing and turning away from the follies of sin, and and then that hymn takes that turn and looks to glory when finally we will forever be done with sin. 
But even if the Lord grants you much victory in this area and much growth, old idols will always be ready to tempt you, and new idols will be ready to ensnare you. Idolatry happens anytime we worship, treasure, love, trust, delight in, or find security in anything other than the true God. It's quite a list, isn't it? It happens every time we forsake the spring of living water, which is Jesus Christ our Lord and the triune God, and instead replace our God with our broken cisterns, our broken wells, or our broken um, cisterns, as Jeremiah calls them in Jeremiah chapter 2. This evening, I want us to consider, and as we look at this text, the constant temptation to idolatry and how we are called to flee from it. Corinth was a city steeped in idolatry, and there was this fledgling church. Uh, most of the Gentiles in the church at Corinth would have come out of this idolatry. But the interesting thing that we see from our text is that apparently a number of the Corinthian believers felt free enough in Christ to go back to participating in the feasts at the idol temples in Corinth. Why would they do that? Why would they even want to do that? Well, we're not sure all the the reasons why, but probably the answer lies along the directions of cultural pressure on them, societal pressure on them. There were annual celebrations and feasts. What if Thanksgiving dinner was held at an idol temple and all your family and friends went there at a certain time of year? What if the annual Memorial Day picnic was not in a park in town but was at the idol temple? Their culture was so steeped in idolatry that many of their events would have been that way. In fact, there's evidence that the various trade guilds in ancient cities had meetings and feasts in idol temples. So how would you like it if your company picnic was at an idol house, temple? Probably those were the kinds of things that they would have said to themselves, well, I can go to the company picnic in the local temple and I'll be fine. I won't be worshiping the temple, the, the idol in my heart. I, I only worship the Lord. In fact, This is the issue at hand as we see that some of the Corinthians were running out to what we would say the very edge of the cliff in their liberty in Christ. And they were saying, we're free to eat meat sacrificed to idols, which Paul has already addressed. But now we're free even to eat in the very temple of the idol and not fall into sin. And Paul says that's not true. Now, this issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols was a very important issue in that day, and they're very important principles that we've been looking at in chapters 8 to 10. The principles have to do with what will what I am doing hurt myself? Will what I am doing hurt others or cause them to stumble or offend them? And will what I am doing glorify God? Those are some of the principles that come out. But this evening, we see that what the Corinthians thought was an area of Christian liberty was actually something that was forbidden by God as idolatry. Paul makes this very clear. They thought it was possible to go to the idol temple and to participate in the worship there to some degree, to be part of a feast there, and to do that without sinning, 
But our text makes it clear that that's impossible. That's going beyond Christian liberty into actual sin. And so Paul exhorts them in verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. They're going too far. And Paul sets forth a very basic principle to expose their sin. The principle is this. You cannot serve idols and still worship God inwardly. You cannot serve idols and God at the same time. They thought it was okay because they were just serving the idols outwardly, but probably thinking, I'm really still serving God alone inwardly. But he's saying, no, that's impossible. And he's saying, you must not do that. How does Paul set forth and explain this basic principle? That is our first point, that we can only serve God. We can't serve idols and God at the same time. Well, in verses 15 to 17, we have to understand the logic here. He's comparing it and contrasting it to the Lord's Supper. He says, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. And then he starts to talk about what happens when they partake of the Lord's Supper. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is that not a participation in the body of Christ? The idea of the Lord's Supper or communion has this idea of participation. We participate in the Lord's Supper by faith. We enter into the reality of the Lord's Supper by communion with God as you partake of the elements by faith. It's not a magical thing. It's a spiritual participation. But we might say it this way, and this is what Paul is making the point here. The Lord's Supper is something with outward action. There is receiving the bread and the cup. There is physical participation, which has spiritual significance. It must be linked with faith in order to be properly received. But the point of this illustration that he brings up is that the Lord's table brings one into the spiritual world, in a sense, in a right way or a wrong way, both physically and spiritually. And the same idea is in verse 17. He says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. The NIV translation says, because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf, that sense that we all partake of the same loaf. In other words, everyone who comes to the Lord's Supper enters into communion, that's why we use the word, with the triune God, but with all the other communicants, with other brothers and sisters in Christ. There's this unity that takes place. They form one body in virtue by virtue of their joint participation in Christ himself. This wonderful unity that takes place. He's using that as an argument to say, you can't go to the idol temple and participate outwardly and say you're not entering into it to some degree. And then in verse 18, there's a similar kind of example from the Old Testament sacrifices of the people of Israel. He says, Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? 
when an Israelite would offer a sacrifice, when he would take his, his sheep or his bird or whatever it was he was taking to sacrifice, and he would offer it, typically, depending on the sacrifice, he'd be given some part of it to eat. And he, Paul's saying that when that Israelite ate that meat, he actually partook of the altar. In other words, simply to eat was to perform an act of worship. To eat brought the worshiper into communion with the altar and all that that altar stood for. And so we see it's not hard to see how the same is true for the meat, the food that is offered up in an idol's temple. If we make the conclusion, if we look back, we could say, well, in one sense, if that meat gets, ends up getting sold in the marketplace, you're no longer there in the idol temple participating, Paul says, then it's not wrong as long as your conscience is strong and, you're, and you don't think it's sin. You can eat that kind of meat sold in the marketplace, but to be in the idol temple is wrong. It's participating in worship. And so in verse 19, he says, what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? Is he saying that, is he going back on what he said? No. He's already described in chapter 8 that an idol isn't anything. He says, no, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God, I do not want you to participate with demons. So someone who is offering in a temple court, in temple worship of some kind, he says they're not really offering it to the God. They think they are. Those gods don't really exist. They are nothing. But there does exist a very real spiritual realm, a spiritual world, he's saying. They are actually offering these things to demons. Their existence is very real. And that's may, that may not be what the worshiper intends, but Paul's point is that is what the worshiper is actually doing. And so this first point we've seen from our text is that we cannot serve both God and idols. He summarizes in verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Well, the rest, my second point, is application of this. I want us to think for a while about applying this command, about fleeing from idolatry. And it's interesting that in verse 22, Paul concludes with his exhortation about don't provoke the Lord to jealousy. Are we stronger than he? This holy jealousy of God in which we are the bride of Christ we are called to be true to Him and to worship nothing else. Let's think about five practical points about fleeing from idolatry. The first is this, the way idols attract us, how for us to flee from them. Idols attract us by offering something that we want. We don't have the ancient idols of wood and stone but it's helpful to think about how ancient peoples thought about the idols. They hoped that when they made an offering to an idol, that somehow the idol would give them something. 
There was this expectation that if they needed rain and there was a drought, can you imagine being a farmer in an ancient land in a summer like this when there's a drought for, I know it wasn't an official drought, but it seemed like it got pretty dry around here. And you were getting desperate. You started to think, well, Jehovah doesn't seem to be coming through. I need some action here with the rain. So they make an offering to an idol. Or maybe they want safety from their enemies. And so worshiping idols was in order to get what the person desires. Obviously, to do so is to forsake the Lord. But what would have been in the back of their minds is, the Lord isn't giving me what I need right now. I'll go to another God. Jehovah doesn't seem to hear, let's set up an idol to Baal. And by the way, the book of Revelation in its letters to the churches in chapters 2 and 3 clearly implies that there was persecution of the believers in that Corinthian time when the church was, or shortly after that, that Paul is addressing here, and that there were probably, there was probably a costliness to people not participating in the idol feasts. Probably it was easier for them to have financial costs involved with that, or maybe their business would suffer because of it, or they would be ostracized in terms of their family and friends if they didn't participate in that. So maybe they thought if they could just participate without actually worshiping the idol, they could have the best of both worlds. The principle of looking to idols to give us what we want is still the same for you and for me in the kinds of idolatry that we in the modern world face. Every Christian is regularly tempted to substitute other things, other gods with a small g for Jesus Christ in order to get what we want. It might be that we want something that's always wrong, and we substitute that, or it may be something that is fundamentally not bad, but we want it too much so that it functionally begins to take God's place in our lives. We were watching the sports teams practice across from our house. We live across from a sports park now. And, you know, I always loved sports when I was a boy. And we could rightly say that sports is good in many ways. It promotes teamwork and discipline and helps kids get exercise so they don't sit on the couch all day and everything. But every Christian who is at all observant knows that there's a real danger in our present society for sports to become an idolatry, to completely demand everything of your life. Or it might be not just to pick on sports, but think of wealth, financial security. It's interesting that in both Colossians and Ephesians, covetousness or greed is linked to idolatry. Covetousness, which is idolatry. Paul says that both in Colossians and Ephesians. So idolatry is linked to wanting more and more, to wanting what we don't have. Basically, a worldly materialistic view of life. Pleasures of all kinds, a good reputation, comfort, peace and quiet. I'm just giving you all kinds of ideas for what idols may look like in our lives. Maybe the desire to look attractive to others, which a lot of these things aren't wrong in and of themselves, but if they control us and rule us, they become idols. Or to have others really like us or approve of us or to give us love, to have others serve us. 
Maybe it's the desire for power or success or recognition or control over others in our lives. The list goes on. It's pretty easy to see the idolatry piece with something like alcohol or drug abuse, where the uh, alcoholic wants comfort, he wants to feel good, so maybe he wants to escape from his troubles to some degree, and so his idol object, his alcohol, gives him what he wants, at least temporarily. That's pretty obvious in that case, but what about more subtle kinds of idolatry? What about a parent who wants the other parents and the other folks, maybe in church, to respect him or her? And so he disciplines his children, but he steps over the line in terms of anger merely because of appearance sake. Maybe he wouldn't have done it that way at home, but he does it that way in public because of what others see. And it's not for the upbuilding of the child, but it's an idol. Or another possibility Maybe a parent who wants some peace and quiet and orderliness at home, which is not wrong to want to a degree, but if it rules us, then it is wrong. And if that desire begins to rule you, it leads to anger or harshness with your child, and you can see you're beginning to slip into a form of idolatry. Why do idols attract us? Idols attract us by offering to give us what we desire, and for a while it may be that our idols seem to be paying off. There's a degree of satisfaction, but then the bait is switched for the hook. So idols attract us by offering something, and we could say they offer us life in one sense. The problem is that it's a fraud. And that brings us to our second point of application Idols attract us, but then deceive us. Flee from idolatry. The Corinthians were being deceived about whether they were really participating in idolatry. And Paul's saying, you are. You cannot help but participate in it. Flee from it. You can't compromise with it. But idolatry is powerful because it's so deceptive. Idols deceive us. They may seem to satisfy for a period of time, but ultimately they come up empty. The Old Testament speaks about idols being vain. They're empty. They run dry. Psalm 16 verse 4 says it this way, the sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. You run after other gods and you think you're getting maybe better crops or safety from enemy armies, but the psalmist is saying the sorrows of those who run after other gods, will actually increase. It may appear that your idol is giving you what you want, but that's where the bait and switch comes in. You think you're controlling your idol to get what you want, but actually your idol ends up controlling you. You're being brought into bondage. You're being tricked. You're being ensnared. And these idols are really of no help at all. What if you turn your job into an idol. And I'm not saying don't work hard. That's important. There are extremes on both ends of this. But maybe it's not the job itself that's the idol. Maybe it's money or success or power or reputation, things like that, and it's not wrong to work hard. But how do you know you're slipping into idolatry? Probably because of bad fruit that would accompany any idolatry. 
you find yourself neglecting other important responsibilities, or your devotion to your job and your work leads to unloving actions and attitudes towards other people, maybe at your job or at your home, or it's consuming your attention and taking the place of the Lord's rightful place in your heart in terms of your affection and your delight and your joy, and you hardly think about the Lord anymore. This idolatry may provide benefits for a time, but that's where the deception comes in. It only ends up giving you empty husks like the prodigal son had to eat. This dynamic of deception and enslavement is described in Romans chapter 6, where Paul is making some conclusions about our lives being dead in Christ and alive with Christ. And in verse 15, he asks this, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Just because we're under grace doesn't mean that we have the right to sin. And he says in verse 16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. He's saying there's this this principle of slavery in a sense. If you present your members, your body, what you do, what you say, where you go, everything about yourself, what you say, if you present your members to sin, you are the slave of sin. If you present your members to God, you are the slave of God. There's this principle of the enslaving of us. And Paul's point here is, you've been set free in Christ. Live that way. Many times we don't feel that way. We feel like we're still enslaved. But the apostle declares, no, every believer has been made alive in Jesus Christ, has died fundamentally to sin. And the rest of your life, you're working that out and living in light of that. Christians have a new master. They have a new Lord. They have a new nature. They are a new creation in Christ. And so we no longer need to be deceived and led astray by idolatry and sin. Our third point, we must fight idolatry by repentance and faith. We must fight idolatry by repenting and by trusting the Lord. Battling our tendencies to idolatry begins with genuine repentance concerning the specific idols that attract us. One of the first problems in fighting idolatry in our lives is these idols are things that we're so used to, we don't even really think about We don't even stop to think about it. We don't even see them. We're blind to some degree to their power. We don't realize the enslaving power of these things. Or even if we do see it, we often don't want to let go to some degree. We're torn between trusting and loving the Lord and trusting and loving the idols that cling to us. But by God's grace and by the power of the Spirit, we are able to more and more die to our idolatries and live to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this begins with seeing the idols for what they are and repenting, turning from those things and saying to the Lord, yes, my heart is going in this direction. I see that. It just seems like almost an involuntary thing. Lord, I repent. I turn away from that. We turn back to the Lord again and again and again 
our daily life is to be one of repentance and faith in Christ. To whatever else holds our allegiance. I like the way the Thessalonians' conversion is described in 1 Thessalonians 1.9. Paul says, They tell us how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven. Turning from idolatry, that fundamental repentance and faith, is at the entrance to becoming a Christian in the first place. We, we, we repent of our sin and our idolatry and we turn to the living God and then we find that every day that same pattern is to continue, repenting and turning from all idols, everything that would replace God in our lives. Well, repentance starts with having insight, receiving insight about what are the idols in our life. And so we're to repent both generally We know that there are things and there's remaining sin in our heart, but also it has to be specific. What are the particulars in my life that the Lord is putting His finger on by the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit brings the Word of God to light in my heart and shines the spotlight? I like the way James talks about it in James 1. He says, if we go to the Word of God and we look at it, and we, we don't get insight from it, we don't go away changed at all, we're like a person who looks in the mirror, and, you know, I checked the mirror before I came out here to preach, and I had to comb my hair just a little bit to look my best. And we're like a person who looks in the mirror and doesn't comb our hair. We're not changed by it. James says it's like a mirror to us. It shows us the idols that we cling to. Hebrews 4.12 talks about the Word of God is sharp like a double-edged sword. It's got two edges to it. It cuts both ways, and it discerns our thoughts and intents of the heart. It shows us the idols that cling to our hearts. I like the way Romans 8.13 says, it says, if by the Spirit you put to death the, the misdeeds of the body, you will live. It's by the Spirit's power and help we are, we are enabled day by day to more and more put to death that old Puritan word, mortify our remaining sin. In the daily routine of our lives, we must be asking the Lord and looking for insight about what idols still have a hook in our hearts and meditate on God's Word to apply it. I keep going back to this, but one way to get insight about this, what the root is, is asking what kind of fruit is there. And often these these kinds of fruits come out in our relationships that others and our relationships with them and the conflicts we have and the broken relationships we may have may show what is ruling our heart, show that something is wrong. We may not know exactly what it is, and especially with close family members or close friends that we are truly ourselves around. Those are very helpful relationships. I like the way James talks about it in James 4. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? There's the wrong desires, passions. And that word can mean good things, but it also means sinful passions and desires. And then he goes on to say, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? There's that same kind of thing, that spiritual adultery or idolatry is tied in to the conflict we have. It shows up. Maybe when others 
fail to satisfy my expectations or my demands or the way I want my life to be, and there's bad fruit, and maybe that's a sign that I need to search my heart and say, what is it that I wanted so much that I was willing to suspend the command to love my neighbor as myself and to love God with all my heart and bring forth bad fruit? It's probably an idol there somewhere. Ask yourself, do I tend to punish others by imposing guilt or shame on them by some little comment I make, being in a bad mood, withdrawing emotionally, being cool to the other person, maybe withholding affection in some way? How about being perpetually critical of others or more extreme, harsh and demeaning language? And the list goes on of these kinds of bad fruits that show some idol in our heart that is ruling us. So repenting of our specific idols means that we agree with God about these things and that with our whole being, our mind, our emotion, our will, our desires, we turn away in the power of the Spirit and we turn instead to the Lord Jesus Christ. We turn from the idol and from seeking the blessing of an idol from valuing these things above the Lord, we turn from self-sufficiency and self-reliance and we take up our cross daily and we follow Christ. But number four, battling our idols means that we actively trust in the Lord. We battle with repentance and faith. We put our faith in Him alone. And really, when you think of the Corinthians and what they faced in the culture of their day, it was an act of faith to not go to the idol temple, to break from what the cultural pressure was putting on them. Maybe there are things like that in your life, that everyone around you is saying, oh, you don't believe that way, do you? You know that's, that's fuddy-duddy Christian theology. Come over here in this way. This is what's right. Maybe you young folks experience that in your schools. The pressures can be very strong, and I'm sure there were strong pressures on the Corinthians in some ways. And so there, is, there has to be the faith in the Lord based on the gospel. And the gospel is that God freely forgives us and gives us himself instead of our empty ways of sin. And so I can acknowledge my need, and I can actively call on the Lord in prayer We had that great quartet singing about prayer. Anytime we can call on the Lord to believe God's word and his promise. And the prayer of faith says, instead of trusting in my bank account, and it's not wrong to have a bank account, instead of valuing too highly what other people think about me, and it's not wrong to care something about what others think of you, to a certain degree that's healthy, but that it not rule me in order to not put my trust in idols of this world means that I trust in the Lord instead. I trust in the Lord above all these other things, these other things that would be the siren call to me of something that is the most valuable thing in my life. Believe instead that the Lord is your hope and that He will give you strength. And so we come to Him again and again and again trusting in Him alone. Which brings me to my final exhortation. We battle idolatry by delighting 
in the Lord above all else. We battle idolatry by delighting in the Lord. By faith, with our minds, we believe that the Lord is supremely worthy or valuable. And we understand that we are the bride of Christ. We belong to Him. With our desires, we long for Him. We delight in Him. We rejoice in Him. With our will, we give Him our allegiance. We say, Thy will be done. His will becomes our will. We seek to live according to the revealed will of God in the Word of God. That is the solution to false worship. It's only found in true worship, which is a worship of the heart as well as outwardly. It's like that sermon title. Some of you may have read the sermon, Stephen Carnock's exposition. He calls it the expulsive power of a new affection. And the sermon's about how, how do old wrong desires get pushed out of our lives? The expulsive power of a new affection for Jesus Christ. The Bible sets before us the reality of the great love of Jesus Christ and His cross. The cross is something so attractive, so wonderful, so beyond any earthly thing that it is a delight to us. We see the great love of God poured out on the cross. And so we must fight false worship with true worship. Do you ever notice that people praise what they value? Our son and his wife had their second child yesterday, and we got that phone call. The baby's been born. You know, this is just spectacular. A new human being has come into the world, and you just can't be superlative enough about what a beautiful baby this is. And we rejoiced with them, and we said, can we make some phone calls too? Can we call Nana, and what about Uncle so-and-so? Oh, yeah, you can make those. Okay, let's make the phone calls. You didn't have to twist our arm. Oh, okay, I'll make the phone call. No, we wanted... We praise what we highly value. The battle against idolatry is to replace false worship with delight in the Lord. What do you value? We overcome idols by valuing Christ above all. Our hymn number four declared it in this way. As it declared the reign of God, it said, all idols underfoot be trod. The Lord is God. The Lord is God. Let us worship the Lord this week in our daily life. Amen. Father, we pray that you would give us strength to turn away and flee from idolatry in our lives. We think that the Corinthians and their temples and what they faced, we tend to minimize it in our minds and not think much of it and yet they were fighting a spiritual battle just like we are immersed in the culture of our time, and we fight spiritual battles as well. We need your grace. We cannot do it alone. We need to take up the whole armor of God. We need to flee when idols attract us and seek to ensnare us and deceive us. We pray that you would give us insight even this week, each one here. And if there is one here this evening who hasn't really laid his or her life down at the throne of God before Christ and trusted in the cross of Christ, we pray that every idol would be repented of and turned away from and that Jesus Christ would reign supreme in that heart and life. Give us grace to live that way this week. For the glory of our great God, we pray. Amen.